Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, lovely listeners. Welcome back to Skylit, the Skylight Books podcast series, where we bring you all of your favorite authors near and far. Um, we are here today with Kristen Miyares Young, the author of Subduction. Um, I'm going to read her full bio in a minute, but I just want to say hello, Kristen, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me on, Maddie. Uh, so, Kristen is here to talk about her debut novel, Subduction. And I wanna give you guys a little bit of an introduction to Kristen. So here's her bio. Kristen Miatis Young is the author of Subduction, a Paris Review staff pick called Whip Smart by the Washington Post and a brilliant debut by the Seattle Times. A prize-winning journalist and essayist, Kristen serves as prose writer in residence at Hugo House. Her reviews, essays, and investigations appear in the Washington Post, Literary Hub, The Guardian, and elsewhere. Anthologized in Latina Outsiders, Remaking Latina Identity, and Pie and Whiskey, a New York Times new and noteworthy book. Her personal essays are also forthcoming in Advanced Creative Nonfiction, A Writer's Guide, and Anthology and Alone Together, Love, Grief, and Comfort During the Time of COVID-19. She was the researcher for the New York Times team that produced Snowfall, which won a Pulitzer Prize. From 2016 to 2019, she served as board chair of Investigate West, a nonprofit newsroom she co-founded to protect vulnerable peoples and places of the Pacific Northwest, which is a place that's very dear to my heart. I'm an Oregonian. Uh, Kristen, thank you for being here again. Um, we're so excited to talk about your book today. Uh, and yeah, we've, we've had many conversations over email <laughs> <laughs> but this is our first time sort of meeting face to face, as it were, and it's so great to talk to you. Um, you are also a, an events person, so I feel a kindred <laughs> spirit <laughs> with you. Um, and we are so excited that we're actually going to be hosting a virtual event with you coming up in July, uh, July 24th, with some special guests. Um, so we hope uh, everyone who listens to this episode will um, sign up for that on our Crowdcast page, crowdcast.io slash skylightbooks. Um, before we get into your reading, Kristen, could you tell us who else is joining you on that event? Uh, so we have the poet Lori Bedikian, the memoirist Brittany Ackerman, and the poet Alexandra Teague. Uh, Brittany and Lori are locals uh, to LA and Alexandra is someone who, like me, was going to be flying in uh, from the Pacific Northwest. Uh, she has a book coming out, or has just come out, called Or What We're, We'll Call Desire uh, by Persia Books. And uh, she's a former Stegner Fellow and teaches at the University of Idaho. 
um, someone I've met at the Centrum Port Townsend Writers Conference, which is this fantastic annual writers conference that we convene and teach and play music and write and get an improbable amount of work done considering that we were in community for a full week. Um, but I'm looking forward to at least seeing them in the ether, if not in person. Yeah, it's, it's such a good lineup and it was your original event lineup. So I'm really glad we could bring everyone back together in, in cyberspace, if not in personal physical space. Um, all right. So do you want to start us off with a, a short reading from the novel? Sure. Uh, so this, as you mentioned, is my debut novel. It's a book that was a long time in the making. I began researching this book uh, 15 years ago uh, and began really uh, in earnest in 2007, uh, spending years researching before I began to write, uh, in part because I felt that I had been badly educated as uh, someone who considers herself to be a historian and had studied history extensively, I felt that uh, though I had learned many of the immigrant narrative trajectories that were parallel to my own families, I had not yet reckoned with uh, the collision of that diaspora with indigeneity and the needs and concerns and histories of uh, the peoples who preceded uh, my family as a rival and that of so many others. Um, so I began to uh, explore those concerns through the paradigm of a story about a Latina anthropologist who in the wake of a devastating betrayal uh, by her husband and sister uh, drags her damage out to the Macaw Nation at Nia Bay, which is a reservation on the northwest tip of the Olympic Peninsula in Washington State. Uh, right at the mouth of the Strait of Juan de Fuca. And when I um, considered the ways in which Claudia, who is that protagonist, interacts with the community that she finds, uh, I found there a series of fractals that were replicated throughout history and the troubled history of encounter that these peoples have uh, survived and endured uh, for hundreds of years, uh, though they have been uh, living and occupying that territory for millennia, uh, which have been proven, in fact, um, unlike many other Native communities whose technologies, because they were uh, based in biological materials, have uh, been erased with the passage of time, except uh, through oral histories and present-day uh, remakings. Uh, the Macaw have a wonderful collection of artifacts that were cured in salt water um, in a beach, uh, deep buried in a beach at Ozette uh, by a landslide that occurred hundreds of years ago and kept all of their technologies um, hidden from the light and, and preserved so that they could be exhumed and cataloged and um, in collaboration with Macaw elders, their meanings divined. Um, so there is a very wonderful history uh, that was led by uh, the Macaw tribe and uh, the archaeologist uh, Doc Doherty uh, about that excavation at Ozette, uh, whose artifacts are now being housed by the Macaw Cultural and Research Center. But the fact is that this territory was uh, right, as I said, at the mouth of the Strait of Juan de Fuca. And because so many 
um, the Russians, the Spaniards, you know, the English, the French were looking for a way inland. Um, their history of contact is based uh, often on uh, the exploitative aims of the outsiders who came to their territory. And so all that Claudia does uh, while, while in the Abay has these repercussions that echo throughout history, uh, forwards and backwards. Um, and so uh, this are the kind of opening pages as she makes her way from where she had been living in Seattle uh, to a, uh, a stint of field research um, that she must conduct as an academic uh, in order to uh, secure tenure. The shore pulled away. Froth churned from its feet to hers. The engines hummed through her bones. From the aft deck, Claudia looked back toward the city they made home. She searched the skyline for places they had been happy. The top of the Space Needle, a waterfront park, the Ferris wheel, until her westward passage split the horizon into expanses of gray demarcated into sea and sky by hue alone. Puget Sound opened in fathoms below the ferry. Now Claudia left town without saying her goodbyes. Seattle was a small world. Movers must have swarmed her house to clear out Andrew's belongings in the space of one morning. The neighbors would have seen. What had they seen? She couldn't bring herself to ask whether her sister had been on site to supervise, and Claudia hid her phone in case someone felt like sending unsolicited glimpses of Maria, deciding what to take, practicing wifeliness, slipping Andrew a kiss for courage as a first box was packed. Claudia pictured Maria's thick curls, her narrow shoulders, those rounded hips, birthing hips. The broadcaster's voice echoed through the loudspeakers, cautioning passengers about unknown items and suspicious activity. It was cowardly of Andrew not to deliver the news important. Worse still, Maria. Did they think that she would handle it poorly? That Claudia was dangerous? Listening to the roar of the props, Claudia saw what her fate might have been, her body lying in the bathtub, blue and bloated, afloat. Her stomach twisted. It was more than she could take or forgive. They knew what they were doing, she thought, yet they think I deserve it. Gulls swept the boat's wake. She was surprised by how close they came, how she could see feathers tracing their sinuous curves, how they were suddenly beautiful, not the splattering scavengers they had been, but flight itself. Right now, everyone I know is stuck at a desk, and then there's me, Claudia thought, on my way back into the field. As a child in Mexico, she wanted to go somewhere, anywhere, away. She had always studied people. She never envisioned herself as an anthropologist, preferring something more dashing, like explorer. But here she was, en route to the Macaw Reservation at Nia Bay, an old whaling village on the northwest tip of the lower 48, Indian country. Last year, she noticed Andrew timing her periods, his prick vanishing 10 days after she first bled, which was almost funny, because lately, she found herself wanting to careless, to chance it. Folding up her body on her side of the bed, ovulating alone whenever she could manage it, she had made it through her 30s unscathed. And that was when they were still trying. And now she thought, I'm old. I'd have a baby with downs if I could have one at all. I just, I just wanted something from myself, still do, something bigger for myself, bigger than myself, bigger than all of this. I don't know how to get it without wanting it. Why couldn't he understand? Besides, 
What kind of man fucks his wife's sister? Claudia tilted her head to consider the inverse. What kind of wife would allow her husband to become so close to her sister that he could fall for her, fall inside of her, fill her up? Only a conniving bitch would wrap her legs around her mother-in-law. Only a conniving bitch would wrap her legs around her brother-in-law. Maria's legs were curvy. Great gams, Andrew once said. In horror of excess flesh, Claudia carved herself to gristle. Maria's thighs bloomed. Claudia imagined they would shake in sweaty reverberation during sex, a shuddering and prayerful response to the call of loin striking flank, so unlike the flat slap of muscle her own lovemaking had become. And last month, when her fingers crept between buttons to his curly nest, his hand rose to still her wayward progress. She left her arm on top of him, trying to act natural, like this was cuddling. They pretended to sleep. It took 10 minutes to amass the strength to roll onto her back and concede. It was terrible to be uneasy in her own bed. She hadn't felt that way since college, but this time it was her husband and having had his love and lost it, made her physically ill, a malaise so invasive it was as though she were at altitude, her body shutting down extremities, fingertips first. She signed the papers to be done with it. He wanted out. Thank you. It starts off with a bang. <laughs> well, and honestly, as soon as Claudia arrives, she really should have taken a deferral, right? She could have like dealt with her, she could have handled her business, you know, but what I have found in studying so many uh, outsiders who arrived to this territory is that they just brought all their ish with them. <laughs> and I felt that it was so interesting because so much of uh, the trauma of contact um, has invariably featured the pain of the outsiders rather than the experience of those uh, whom received them. Mm -hmm. And what I wanted to show uh, through another character uh, who has a point of view in subduction, whose name is Peter, um, was the ways in which that welcome itself, that continued welcome, suspicious though it may be, uh, was evidence of a great belief in the possibilities for humanity. Um, although Peter has his own uh, reasons. Um, Claudia is, uh, to his mind, unattached. And of course, we have, uh, he, he has returned to uh, Nia Bay to care for his mother after a very, very long absence that was occasioned by uh, the disappearance and death of his father. And he's come back to take care of his mother, Maggie, who had become a hoarder and uh, been diagnosed with dementia in his absence. And so Claudia had been working with Maggie for years prior to Peter's return. Uh, but when she comes back to that community, she comes back to this household that has been rearranged and where her presence there now must be made palatable for two people. And uh, in her damage, you know, in their um, mutual trauma and exploitation, uh, they begin an affair uh, that is... Um, has very long lasting repercussions um, given the work that she is there to do and also Maggie's own hopes for her son. And so the book kind of uh, unfolds in this triumvirate, uh, but with Maggie, um, who's the mother playing a vital role, 
uh, but Claudia, it's being told by, through Claudia and Peter's perspectives as they alternate. Um, and so we get to see Claudia, um, not as she sees herself, but as she is seen. And similarly with Peter, we, we see through Peter's eyes. Um, and he's, you know, full of the wit and humor that I have found to be so characteristic of um, so many of the tribal members that I have met and befriended. Um, but he also suffers from misogyny uh, and his uh, being steeped in that um, mainstream culture uh, that he, since he had left his home community uh, for so long, um, that filter on the world is meant to hide deep seated insecurities and vulnerabilities. Uh, and, but because we do see through his eyes, we can see what lies beneath and that misogyny and the ache and hope and hurt uh, that also reside there. And part of what I've wanted to do by exploring uh, both of those perspectives uh, was to have a reckoning really uh, with the ways in which our polyphonic, you know, polylithic world um, unfolds many, many, many narratives that may or may not ever converge and tracing their divergences, tracing their collisions, tracing their contradictions uh, to me as a journalist, uh, finding the story has always been not erasing the contradictions, but embracing them and exploring them. And so as a novelist, um, I tried to do the same. I think that's such an interesting place to come at an immigrant story from because, you know, kind of the dominant narratives that we had in this country for such a long time were these unidirectional narratives. Um, one person or a group of people leaving their home country and coming to this country and not really much consideration for the people who are already in the country, not kind of a, there wasn't kind of a, a, a prevailing narrative about the exchange that happens between those cultures when they meet. Um, so that's really interesting to me. And I, I it sounds um, from what you've said that, that there's a lot of real life research that went into the making of this polyphonic novel. Um, could you talk a bit about how your journalism background kind of informed the, the writing of the novel? Sure, yeah. Before I became a freelancer, I was a, a beat reporter at the Seattle Post-Intelligencer, uh, which was a major metro daily based in Seattle that uh, printed from 1863 to 2009. Um, and during my time there, uh, my five years there, uh, which kind of overlapped with the beginning of my research period for uh, subduction, I was always being asked to present a quote unquote objective view of a narrative uh, which invoked so often um, in the case with reporting on government malfeasance or corporate uh, misfeasance, there are uh, two narratives that are pitted against each other. One, the institutional line and two, the community. Right, and, and if you're lucky, right, uh, if the reporter is even trying to do uh, the basis of the job, there is a, a sense that there is a kind of a dueling narrative. And um, what I have found though, is that communities are uh, um, speaking many voices and part of the beauty of having more space uh, to research and to, uh, and to write these scenes was finding the room for the ways in which communities live in both harmony and contradiction. And I 
always felt that because of the impositions of that third person objective uh, view and omniscience that I don't believe in, you know, as a person, um, that there was a flattening of the actual complexity of the narratives that I was daylighting, even if it was for a common good of reversing uh, corporate wrong or holding some elected official accountable, which I did a fair amount of. And so I wanted more room to, uh, to lay out these explorations, which had been so much more vital to me as a, a person. And that was the interiority of uh, moving from a place of not knowing uh, as a, a thinker and uh, someone who has, as like every person does, a deep well of experience and emotions that condition um, each engagement uh, or encounter, um, whether professional or personal, uh, and then making space uh, within that perspective uh, for an examination of concerns that I share, but through the actions of uh, a person that I do find to be deeply unethical, uh, which is the anthropologist, Claudia. Um, <clears throat> it's interesting thing, being a journalist, for example, when you, when someone decides to be interviewed by a journalist, they often call it giving an interview to a journalist. And it is that because it's a gift of intellectual property to that journalist who is under no obligation or uh, there is no shared practice that I'm aware of within the journalism community to provide copies or transcripts of interviews that have been given. Instead, those materials become a primary source document that only the journalist has access to and from which that person curates quotes and uh, which may or may not represent the complexity of thought that had been shared with them. Now, uh, within the knowledge building that can happen um, beautifully, really, between an anthropologist and a community member. Uh, there have been uh, many hard-won rights for co-ownership of that data. Um, and so one of the things that I show Claudia doing fairly early on uh, in the book is um, she has this transcript that she is going to bring to Maggie as a pretext for visiting her home. And that, that, um, that transcript, uh, describes an interview that had been given orally, um, you know, the prior year. And Claudia is horrified reviewing the transcript by the ways in which her own line of questioning shows her the greed of her aims, which are the extraction of deeply held tribal uh, secrets in the forms of songs uh, and the meaning of those songs uh, that Maggie has. And so Claudia begins to doctor this transcript uh, to try to erase her tricks, you know, and she um, she does it with a sense of revulsion, but she does it, you know. And for me, that was not just the beginning of the signaling, but um, that was a very hard scene to write because it um, contradicted something I believe in so deeply that is that interlocutors or any person who uh, converts a, an oral history to a transcript or a documented form uh, needs to pay very close attention to maintaining the accuracy of that exchange. Uh, and yet it also speaks to that which every uh, community that was not based in written form knows, which is that the earliest erasures and violence that is done against a community often comes in the form of documents 
that purport to represent that community, uh, whether those be treaty documents, uh, whether those be um, anthropological field notes, uh, whether they be uh, news articles. Um, these are all uh, kind of uh, a series of documents that I alluded to uh, within the text itself, uh, which does, I, I don't want to make it sound like it's a hodgepodge of uh, field notes. It's a very lyric book. I rewrote it like 15 times at least uh, in term, and reading it out loud and really looking for the cadence of each line. Um, but I think that it's important to always draw attention uh, to this meta narrative, which is um, through the character of this extremely damaged and damaging anthropologist uh, invoking a meta awareness of the problematics of uh, the intention of this novel even, and always roping it back in uh, to make that examination plain on the page was a way that I kind of handled ethically uh, being an outsider trying to come to this reckoning uh, with the history of indigeneity and diaspora in this country. Um, and that those kinds of explorations, I don't care how many uh, thousands of words you're given within a journalistic inquiry, uh, they do require, it seems, a novel length. Um, and so I was grateful that um, Red Hen Press uh, helped me, which is a, a Pasadena-based uh, indie press, familiar, I'm sure, to many of your uh, Los Angeles listeners and beyond. Uh, I was grateful that Red Hen Press uh, saw the value in this telling and um, helped me bring it into the world. Yeah, and I think, I think one thing that's important to highlight is um, that fiction has no claim to objectivity, right? And that allows you a kind of freedom to be honest uh, about your position as the teller um, and, and your protagonist's position as morally compromised. Um, like, yes, I think, I think it makes a lot of sense that with these kinds of investigations, you turn to fiction um, rather than trying to do some kind of major journalistic project. Um, could you talk about kind of the, the ways that you used your nonfiction research in the crafting of the, of the actual plot of the book? And, and like, what did you find useful um, in terms of your, your journalism skills and what did you find to be kind of detrimental or, or um, to hold you back from, from writing the fiction you wanted to write? Well, it's certainly true that in the process of trying to bring the book to market through agents and editors, I received a lot of pressure to make these characters more empathetic by making them, in my mind, a bit less human. So there were uh, exhortations to freshen the anthropologist because she is not uh, an ingenue. You know, she's a woman firmly in her midlife. Um, there were pressures to uh, adhere more to a kind of white savior uh, narrative in which her presence would be um, a positive catalyst for change that um, didn't at the same time uh, create an almost, um, in the ways that trees roots will often map and match the span of the branches, the damage that this anthropologist uh, causes um, and enacts uh, are matched by the scope of what she is able to accomplish to help this family towards its own goal of cultural uh, preservation across generations. And so, 
you know, uh, one thing that journalists aren't often is self-indicting. Uh, but all of my favorite essayists are. And in fact, um, I find it to be one of the true values of literary fiction is that there is room for that continual erosion of, uh, of doubt and which is very fertile territory uh, for any exploration. Um, and fiction provides us with the possibility to examine I'll say that fiction provides us with the opportunity uh, to examine why it is that we hurt each other so much. Um, and when I think about James Baldwin, his essay, The Creative Process, really helped me throughout the framing of this book. He said that if we understood ourselves better, we might damage each other less. And so what I have seen often with journalists invoking their institutional authority, that there is not enough questioning of who the story is serving. You, many people will do something in service of the story as though the story itself were more than the people that it involves. And I'm not sure that that's true. Um, I also found as a journalist, I had been, as I said, encouraged to kind of uh, ventriloquize uh, through this third person omniscience, what that did, it did give me institutional authority at a time when I was probably too young to be taken seriously by any of the maritime um, folks that I was investigating. I was, you know, the youngest reporter at the paper, Latina, you know, in a space that was uh, very white and very old, and very male. Um, but that objectivity, quote unquote, um, that third person lens also occasioned an erasure of my own embodied wisdom as a woman, as a Latina. Uh, and that erasure is something that is demanded of um, very many people who come to professional life, having uh, divergent, uh, diverse experiences in their personal lives that they're asked to blot out or essentially exclude from the frames of reckoning um, as though that were possible. And, and in so doing, uh, often maintain a white supremacist mentality because of course the omniscience uh, and the institutional authority uh, and the quote unquote objectivity uh, that is in fact a very uh, detailed control of narrative are all elements of these systems of oppression uh, which have been foisted on uh, many communities uh, throughout this country and abroad, of course. And so getting out of that and realizing part of that's what Claudia is grappling with is the losses, the racial grief that she has experienced uh, in her long trajectory toward whiteness uh, in this country. And, you know, she came at a time when Assimilation was uh, the task for all new immigrants uh, when there was not as much um, support for and recognition of the value of difference. And it's my hope that uh, her grappling, the sense of loss that you can see uh, in her character as she interacts with people who do still have a sense of community, uh, she having sacrificed that kind of closeness and intimacy in favor of a career, um, which seems to be kind of the brass ring of, of being an American, right? You can have a real career. You know, you may, you may have 
hated your life your entire life, you know, but you had a career, you know, and I'm always so amazed, you know, at the point of retirement, how often people will like leave the communities where they've been or like start an entirely new life, you know, in part because uh, there was a failed promise of a recognition and that with that recognition would come a, a sense of belonging. And what they find instead is a tremendous sense of dislocation. Uh, and Claudia, as a character, bears that dislocation with her wherever she goes. And she does it both as an American and as a Latina. And then she, in many ways, uh, reproduces uh, the damage in others because of the lack of understanding that she has had um, with her own process. Is, is your hope with this novel that um, readers might go through the same kind of reckoning that Claudia goes through uh, or learn from her mistakes or otherwise? Well, certainly there's a sense that, you know, the things that she does are, um, are things that many people do. Many people, when they are retelling a conversation, will reshape the narrative so that it favors their goodness, right? They tell a story of their own goodness, which preserves um, their sense of self-worth and a basically um, makes superfluous any effort that they might make to improve or understand uh, the situation that they're facing. Um, and so it is my hope that by watching Claudia flail, uh, she's been following all of these parameters that have been set up for her by the uh, dominant society, and yet none of them have served her. You know, the life that she built is not really a life that she wants, you know, um, and, you know, and often same thing with Peter. You know, Peter's been told a story uh, about material acquisition and, um, and freedom, you know, that belied the intense loneliness that marks all the decades that he was away from uh, his community. And though Peter, because he is um, funnier and um, a bit looser in some ways, you know, he, he is not, um, not so uptight as Claudia. He can be someone who, you know, elicits our empathy more also because most people um, have more empathy for male characters than they do for female characters. Um, there's this whole trope of the unlikable uh, you know, woman uh, within literature and um, she, she and her creators remain pariahs, uh, you know, despite uh, the truth of the matter, which is that we all do need to learn from the mistakes that people make. And um, it is more, to me, um, literature creates a safe space for that kind of private reckoning where rather than being kind of uh, your spot blown up by your family member, you know, about what you said at dinner, you know, and how that affected them. And you have, you know, people getting defensive about that and getting into an argument, you can have that kind of quiet survey of the self, which allows for hopefully uh, some positive change. So, um, and any reader uh, who hears this podcast and reads the book uh, and wishes to, uh, connect with me about it. Um, very happy to answer questions, um, maybe at the July 24th reading or uh, via my website, uh, kristenmyoung.com or on Twitter, or Instagram, at um, kristenmyares is my handle. And I do uh, check out um, people who follow me and, and do attend to my messages and whatnot. But it's been hard to um, 
in some ways have the conversations that I wanted to have uh, with this book because it did come out during a pandemic. And yet I've had very far ranging conversations with people all over the world uh, about this book. And I'm grateful for the ways that technology has enabled that to happen um, despite social distance. Well, thank you for um, bringing the conversation to us today. Uh, I, I, I'm really fascinated by, by kind of all of the, the missions of this, this novel and, and everything, all of the experiences you brought to it. Um, I, I'm very excited to hear you talk more about it at the virtual event. And I have more questions, but I think this is a great place to end things for now. Um, Kristen, thank you so much for being here today. It's a pleasure. Uh, thank you for creating community in the ether. I'm glad to be part of it. <laughs> yes, we're all hanging out sort of yes. amorphously <laughs> here. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you all for listening. Um, our guest today was Kristen Miatis Young, author of the novel Subduction. She'll be appearing virtually on Crowdcast um, with several other fantastic writers on July 24th. So uh, we hope to see you there. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.